0: All right, well, I'm uh, turning the recorder on, so again, this is the journey class. Welcome. We're studying and learning about uh, ministering to the lost. Uh, I've got a 38-minute 38 38 video here today, right there. Man, we are, we are tech savvy. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to play just this 30-second promotional segment and uh i got the controls here but i'm going to st- i'm going to play the other video let's just, let's just watch this 30 minute 30 second uh, promo video let's see if it'll go can you give me that little clip honey
1: fate of those you love if they die without Uh
0: Christ.
1: We have created an exciting and totally unique course that will help you reach them with the gospel. We'll teach you how to bypass the intellect the place of argument and speak directly to the conscience, the place of the knowledge of right and wrong. It's simple effective and it's biblical. It's what Jesus did. Sign up today.
0: Hey, that didn't go, did it? You didn't hear the sound, did you? Alright, turn that light back on would you somebody. Cause I just can't see the controls here oh. alright now's the time we ask what would Jim do <laughs> WWJD <laughs> Get a woman what would Jim do Jim's on here maybe he'll give you some <laughs> no uh, let's see here I wonder if I have to turn the sound off on my yeah. okay okay Alright, let's do... Don't, don't turn the light off, but let's watch this 30-second 30, 30 thing again. So that'll shut this off.
1: Think of the terrible fate of those you love if they die without Christ. We've
2: created an exciting and totally unique course.
1: We'll teach you how to bypass these... in black?
0: The place of argument
1: and speak directly to the conscience the place of the knowledge of right and wrong it's simple, effective, and it's biblical it's what Jesus did sign up today
0: let me go down to my sound that's not that is Jim saying anything? nope <laughs> you see anything else Mr. Kevin? no <laughs> Hmm. Is this not the normal computer you use? Yeah, this is the one I used last week. Hmm. <sighs> not
3: gonna do it, is it? My, I wonder. You can turn this one up, and I can hear it. I can hear.
1: Think of the the terrible fate of those you love if they die without Christ. We have created an exciting and totally unique course that will help you reach them with the gospel. We'll teach you how to bypass the intellect, the place of argument, and speak directly to the conscience, the place of the knowledge. Can you guys hear that? It's simple, effective, and it's what Jesus did. Sign up today.
0: All right. So okay well we're just going to go with that then uh jim says is the problem with the audio is it not going through the uh-huh. hdmi to the tv speakers right that's yes. what that's what we think correct jim yep it's not going through the hdmi to the tv <coughs> all right well uh how many uh how many of you looked at your uh, book this week Pam did, Chuck did, Rosie, Angie did. All right. Well, uh, in the back of chapter one. So we're going to try to kind of wrap up chapter one, and we're going to do uh, mm-hmm. chapter two. You need a book still? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's in that box right there, honey. This box. Yeah. Hey, Tom, are you going to try to be in on this series? Do you want a book? I need a
3: box or a counting box? I don't know. The,
0: uh, the one no, no. This is uh, the way of the master evangelism course. This, this is a eight or ten week thing. What? Okay, I'm gonna have you grab a book. You'll grab a book. Yeah. Okay. Uh, anyway, try to bring your books each week. Uh, and, and as I'm telling you that, I didn't bring my book today, so... <laughs> uh, let me just use yours. So in the back of Lesson 1, it said to ask somebody, uh, two people from your church, if they share their faith on a regular basis. Does anybody remember what percentage of Christians it says actually share their faith? Uh, Four? Nope. What did you say?
3: Two,
0: I said. Pam said two. Kevin, you were so close. It was two. It's only 2%. He doesn't get no candy. (laughs) So, Leo, can you give this to Emmett? What? Emmett and Pam. we got to sweeten them up a little bit. (laughs) But listen, that's pretty crazy, isn't it? 2%. Only 2%. Of uh, Christians share their faith, and uh, today, do you see this uh, this topic here? Discovering hell's best kept secret. Oh, thanks. Um, it's near the end of chapter one. Lesson one. Lesson uh, one. Page sixteen. Page sixteen toward the top of uh, yeah, number two at the top of page 16 real world application it says to call two people from your church and say I'm taking an evangelism course called the way of the master and it's part of the homework I need to ask someone a few questions can you help me with this then ask them the following question do you share your faith regularly many people feel they share their faith if, if they mention God or church So ask what that mean, what they mean. And do you go out of your way to verbally share the gospel with strangers? And then uh, what is the main reason you don't share your faith more often? And write down the answers. Uh, Has anybody done that lately? Hey, Sean. Uh, Kevin?
3: I know Connie has also.
0: She's asked people or she does share.
3: She came up and was talking to me and asking me some 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 ways of being able to share your faith because she, she's a good talker but she just doesn't know what to say.
0: Right, right. And, and honestly, it's a little bit intimidating seeing uh, Ray Comfort and, and Kirk Cameron share their faith because they just make it look kind of easy. Yeah. They make it look really easy. <laughs> and it, it does get easier as you share your faith and uh, I remember um, we went out on a... Uh, This was really embarrassing to me. Yeah, unlock that door, would you, Chuck? Hey, Destiny. Uh, We were going... Our church, the church I used to go to, went to some haunted houses. Because at haunted houses, there's like long lines waiting to get in. And so we would try to witness to people in line. And the thing that was embarrassing to me is uh, I was, you know maybe 15 years old as a Christian, and so there was, I forget even who it was, but it was either, I think it was a lady, she says, well, Steve, I'm going to go with you, I want to see how it's done, and, and I just panicked, I'm like, well, I don't know what I'm doing, you know, we're giving out tracks, and so I might ask somebody, you know, here, have you got one of these, and and i just didn't have a really a vocabulary to share my faith and so those are good and so after a couple people she went and she was going with somebody else cuz she knew i didn't know what i was doing and so but what was cool was that very night i led a black guy to the lord he he was in line to go in the haunted house and he was with some friends and he just kind of and he was convicted and he got saved right there at the haunted house just with a gospel track, So, uh, you know, use the literature you have, and, and we're going to give out some tracks today. In fact, this might be a good opportunity. Uh, Rosie, l- let's give everybody two of these, and let's just say, and I'm going to hang on to one. Uh, Go ahead I, uh, and give Angie a couple, too. I
3: found the best tool you can use is as as God's as testimony in your life. Because a-
0: absolutely. It keeps you open, right. and it
3: gets them comfortable with you and who you are.
0: Yeah, and and you're you're good at that, Kevin. Uh, but that that is so your own personal testimony, and uh, uh, probably all of you have heard of Billy Graham. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the very last crusade he did was 2004 at Chief Stadium, and I was there for that. I, I was one of the counselors, and and one of the things that they said that was very profound to me. They said, all you need... Uh, because the question was, how, how do you lead somebody? And they said, all you have to do is be one step ahead of the person that you're leading. Somehow that clicked with me. It's like, you don't have to have it all figured out, but if, if you're saved and they're not, you're one step ahead of them. And so uh, that, that was really a, a great... Uh, event in my life uh, to be on the field at Chief Stadium and Arrowhead Stadium, and and people came forward, and, and I got to talk with three or four people that night, and you know some people came forward I think just to be on the field of Chief Stadium, so it was kind of uh, maybe ulterior motives, but but uh, this track, if you look on the back, uh, Life Issues had these made. I I had two thousand of these made when we started our ministry, and we still have some. We haven't given out 2,000 tracks yet. Uh, We've got a stack of about 100 or so left at home, and I think there might still be some in the trailer, but... We've given out well more than half of them, but this track is kind of based on the Way of the Master series, and so uh, we give one of these to every guest uh, that comes to our life issues meetings. And so, uh, what I challenge you to do is maybe not only read through this yourself this week, but give one to somebody else. I I stuck some of these in my door of my pickup today, so I'm going to try to be more. Because there's been times where I'm like. Uh, I'd like to share my faith with someone, but I, I don't know quite how to start it. So, you know, we, we try to leave a track at the table when we uh, eat, eat lunch or dinner somewhere. And uh, so anyway, uh, try to look through that. That that really goes with this uh, series that we're doing. And uh, I'm trying to think about anything else in in the booklet here. I did I did call one person this week and ask him if they shared their faith. Uh, it's it's a guy. It's a member of our church, and uh, I knew that he does share his faith. Uh, but but one thing he said that really resounded with me. Uh, He said, Steve, because I asked, you know, kind of what method do you use or how do you share your faith? And he said, Steve, as I'm talking to somebody, um, it's always in the back of my mind, how can I work Jesus into this conversation? And and I just thought that was really good counsel. uh, As you're talking with people this week, how can I talk about Jesus with this person? And uh, just an hour or two later, after I talked to him... I'm thinking about that and uh, I was in the store buying something and it was just me and the guy working at the cash register, and I just I just asked him if he's a believer. And so, in my mind, I'm thinking, how do I share Jesus with this person? And and uh, he he said he got saved 10 years ago when his dad died, and so I asked him if he went to church, and he really doesn't go to church. And so, that, that right there is one of the things that this uh, discovering hell's best kept secret... And so, when we're done, I want us to see how we would answer that question. So, I'm going to play part of this, and then I'm going to pause in the middle, and uh, we'll talk about it a little bit. So, I'm going to try to move this microphone for the Facebook up here. Actually, it needs to go by my computer, doesn't it? (laughs) Because that's not working. Okay, so scratch that. Alright, well Sarah, let's go ahead and kill the lights, and we're going to watch, and I'm going to pause it, at, because I do have something I want to comment on when we get a little further in, but try to think of what is hell's best kept secret.
1: Have you heard the exciting reports of millions making decisions for Christ, of the church exploding and increasing in number? Well, we want to tell you about a secret. It's called the follow rate to 90% of those who are making decisions for Christ are now falling away from the faith. That means that modern evangelism and the methods it uses to bring people into the church is producing 80 to 90 of what we commonly call backsliders for every 100 decisions for Christ. Let me make it a little real for you. A number of years ago, a
2: major denomination in the U.S. was able to obtain 294,000 decisions for Christ. 294,000! Unfortunately, they could only find 14,000 in fellowship, which means they couldn't account for 280,000 of their decisions. And this is normal, modern, evangelistic results from local churches, right up to large crusades. And we believe this...
0: Okay, turn that back on again for a second. That, that is what I wanted to, to comment on. <clears throat> and and I, think, I think some of that is natural. I mean, maybe you, you know people who have become Christians that are not in church today. And... Uh, what do you mean by decisions? Well... So look yeah, let's just say let's just say a thousand people go forward at a Billy Graham crusade, and usually it's I think there were four or five thousand people came forward when I was there. Uh no, maybe it was three thousand some, but that that's what they're saying. Maybe they said a prayer, they go forward at a church service, they make some kind of decision, Lord come into my life. But uh that's at, you know close to three hundred thousand, and 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 that's been true in, in my life too. Uh, most of you know I have done jail ministry for uh, actually six years and, but uh, so in in, <laughs> in, in my uh, I don't have anyway I I keep track of people that uh I've been part of leading to the Lord and and there is a few hundred that have accepted Christ uh in in our jail ministry as well as our recovery ministry and ac- actually that's that's what prompted me uh so yeah these are just uh names that I've written in my bible like we would get out of the jail and come home and maybe me and Brian were in the jail And uh, we might have five or six people raise their hand. I prayed to receive Jesus with you, pastors. And so I don't know all their names, but, uh, you know, I do have several pages of people's names that have... uh, I don't know if you can see even at the bottom of my page. um, But I I bet of, of the few hundred that have prayed to be saved in our jail ministry... Uh, not more than 20 ever came to church and, you know, not more than 10 are still in church today. So what these statistics that they're saying uh, are, uh, you know, what I've experienced as well. And, uh, you know, you can blame that on whatever, but these guys are saying, uh, we're going to see how, how they explain it. And two percent, yeah, yeah, for sure you are, and uh, <clears throat> some of it is the, the day and age that we live in. Uh, I had Jim Stovall do some uh, th- this is for something else I'm studying, but this guy here that wrote in two thousand fourteen. He says that between six and ten thousand churches in the U.S. are dying each year, which means one hundred to two hundred churches will close this week. And uh, you know, Angie was said that you know maybe some of these people are going to other churches. Uh, the Barna Group they say that uh, thirty-five hundred to four thousand churches close their doors every year. That's uh, probably accurate. And. Uh, you know, there's 2 million people each year uh, due to nominalization or normalized normalism, secularism. And so uh, they just talk about the decline in uh, church attendance from 1968 to 2005. So anyway, uh, this says there's 21% of Americans attend church uh, religious services every week. And I thought that was interesting uh, compared to the decline uh, from eighty-six percent in nineteen ninety, seventy-seven percent in two thousand one, to twenty-one percent now. So we went from eighty-six uh, percent of people going to church in nineteen ninety to twenty-one percent in in now. That's that's a that's a huge decline, isn't it? It is horrible. Uh, this
3: it's very easy to do
0: yeah yeah you it's easy to miss a week or two and then it becomes three or four and then it's two months and then it's two years. And uh, this is saying 1,400 pastors in America leave the ministry every month. Uh, that's unbelievable. And then this is interesting. Uh, the churches that close their doors are taken over by mosque and Muslim and Islamic people. So that breaks your heart. But uh, the thing that Jim found very encouraging, and uh, maybe we can all take away from this uh, little part of today's lesson, is this highlighted area. Barna has found a link between regular Bible readers and those who remain committed and attending church. It says that, The share of Americans who read the Bible at least several times a week has not significantly changed since 2011. However, there's a more dramatic shift among those who have never read a Bible, jumping a full 10% percentage points in the last eight years. So when looking at the trend line among those who read their Bible weekly, the overall message is clear. Those committed to spiritual practice of Bible reading have stayed just as committed, while those who have never made this a consistent part of their lives are now more likely to never open a Bible. It says right here for 2019 it was 29%. Okay.
3: I would say I would say it's like a flip flop between America and all the other countries because all the other countries are losing their Muslim Mm -hmm. uh, followers Mm -hmm. and becoming Christians, and America's losing their Christian followers and becoming Muslim.
0: (laughs) I tell you, you're right. Yeah, that's uh, that's. I think that's true in. in New England where they've accepted Muslims and Muslims uh, mosque and it's growing now it's on the decline a little bit I've heard that too so anyway uh, so in, in the middle of sharing our faith don't, don't miss this that uh, we want people to get baptized, to follow the Lord to read their Bible, to come to church and so uh, I think our church is uh, maybe uh, Hopefully, we're not that averages that we read there. So, all right, let me let me play another big portion of this, and I'll see if there's a, there's another stopping place I wanted to talk about something.
1: Tragedy is happening, not
0: because could shut the light,
1: because of a lack of follow up, but rather because the church has strayed away from the biblical way of presenting the gospel, the way Jesus did. So let's look now at how Jesus's approach was radically different from the typical modern methods. In Mark 10, verse 17, we have the story of the rich young man who runs up to Jesus and says, Good Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I don't know about you, but if that happened to me, I would be very excited. That would be a chance of a lifetime. Notice that Jesus does not say, Oh, my friend, you have a God-shaped hole in your heart that only I can fill. And if you will say this prayer and ask me into your heart, you'll get love, joy, peace, and go to heaven when you die. No. Jesus started by saying, Why do you call me good? There is none good but one. And that is God. So he was correcting this man's understanding of the word good. And then he pointed him to the Ten Commandments. He gave him five of them. He said, you know the law. He says, you shall not lie. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder and honor your father and mother. And the young man said, I've kept all those since my youth. And then Jesus pointed him to the essence of the first and second commandment. and said, One thing you still lack. Go and sell all your goods. Give to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. And the Bible says that the man went away sad. And I'm thinking to myself, didn't Jesus know that no one can keep the Ten Commandments? We're not saved by keeping the law. We're saved by grace. Why did he talk to him that way? I mean, he didn't talk about God's love, God's grace. He didn't pray with him. He didn't even say... Something like, wait, come back. Would you like to come to my house this weekend for a lamb barbecue where I could establish a no-strings-attached, non-confrontational relationship with you? It seemed to me Jesus might have benefited from a friendship evangelism course. But that was my shallow and immature understanding of what he was doing. He was using a principle that prepares the heart for grace. It's a principle that has been used by Charles Spurgeon, John Wesley, George Whitefield. And it it converts the soul according to the Bible. It shows a person why they need the Savior. It's a key that changes everything. And that's why the enemy does not want you to get a hold of it. It's something that the enemy has bent out of shape over the years. He's misused it and even hidden it so that much of the church does not even know that it exists. That's why we call it hell's best kept secret so please watch and listen carefully and don't let anything distract you
2: Psalm 19 verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. What is it that the Bible says is perfect and actually converts the soul? My scripture makes it very clear. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. That'll illustrate the function
1: of God's law. Let's just look for a few moments. Civil law. Imagine if I said to you, I've got some good news for you. Someone has just paid... A $25,000 speeding fine on your behalf you'd probably look at me and say that's not good news it doesn't make sense I don't have a $25,000 speeding fine you see my good news would probably not be good news it would sound foolish but more than that it would also sound offensive because I'm implying that you've broken the law when you don't think you have but if I said it to you this way it might make more sense On the way here today, the law clocked you at going 55 miles an hour through an area set aside for a blind children's convention. There were 10 clear warning signs stating that 15 miles an hour was the maximum speed, but you went straight through at 55 miles an hour. What you did was extremely dangerous. The law was about to take its course when someone you don't even know stepped in and paid the fine for you. You are very fortunate. Can you see that
2: telling you precisely what you've done wrong first actually makes the good news make sense? If I don't bring clear instruction you've violated the law, the good news will seem foolishness, it will seem offensive. But once you understand you've broken that law, then that good news becomes good news indeed. In the same way, if I approach a hardened sinner, someone who's understanding and say, Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, It'll be foolishness to him and offensive to him. Foolishness because it won't make sense. The Bible actually says that. The preaching of the cross is foolishness to them that are perishing. And offensive because I'm insinuating he's a sinner when he doesn't think he is. As far as he's concerned, there are plenty of people far worse than him. But if I take the time to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, it may make more sense. If I take the time to open up the divine law and to show the sinner precisely what he's done wrong, that he's offended God by transgressing his law, then when he becomes, as James says, convinced of the law as a transgressor, the good news of the fine being paid for will not be foolishness, it will not be offensive, it will be the power of God unto salvation.
1: Now with that thought in mind, let's look at Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So there's one function of God's law. It's to stop the mouth of the sinner. To stop a a person from justifying himself, saying, ah, there's plenty of people far worse than I am. I'm not a bad person. No. The law stops the mouth of justification and leaves the whole world, not just the Jews, but the whole world, guilty before God. Romans 3.20 Wherefore... By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So there, the law tells us what sin
2: is. In fact, 1 John 3, 4 says sin is transgression of the law. And then in Romans 7, verse 7, Paul says, I have not known sin but by the law. Paul said he didn't know what sin was, Until the law told him,
1: and Galatians three twenty four, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. So there he's saying that the law is like a schoolmaster that leads us to Jesus Christ, so that we can be justified through faith in His blood. The law doesn't help us, it just leaves us helpless. The law doesn't justify us, it just leaves us guilty before a just and holy God. Let me say that again, this is so important. We are not saved by the law. We are saved by God's grace through faith.
0: Okay, let me stop it there again. Uh, Sarah, if you hit that light again. so uh, this is so important.
3: Um,
0: Probably every one of us, you know, looked in a mirror this morning and, uh, you know, I shaved in a mirror and uh, the mirror basically shows you what's wrong, doesn't it? it? It... it reflects, you know, uh, about yourself. But, you know, uh, since I hurt my arm, I just shave my head so I don't have to worry about trying to comb it, and it's harder to even wash my hair. So I just shave my head off. So, but uh, what's that, Tom?
3: I was just thinking of you saying that. You know, uh, everybody can imagine what they look like themselves. Look in the mirror; it serves you two images.
0: It shows you the true image. Yeah, yeah. And but uh, you know, none of you, you know, actually used a mirror to comb your hair today. None of you did that. None of us did that. None. Of, I didn't use it. I did not use the mirror to actually shave my face. the The mirror simply reflects. It simply shows you, uh, you know, what's wrong. And so. I just think that, uh, and and James actually used that. It says, uh, how that, uh, what does it say there, Kevin? Oh, yours? That when the natural man, man.
3: When a man looks at himself in a mirror, it shows the natural man. But then he right away, when he walks away, forgets the manner.
0: Uh uh-huh. like But then, when we look into the perfect law of liberty, you know, you, you're wise if you take heed there, you know, and do what it tells you. So, not to be hearers of the word but doers.
3: Yeah,
0: doers. So, uh, anyway, I just think that the mirror is just a good illustration of the law. So the law doesn't save us, you know. It's by grace through faith, but the law shows us what's wrong. And uh, uh, I, I don't want anybody to get discouraged because. In the next uh, few videos, so this is the second of eight videos, and the rest of the video they go step by step, because uh, Sarah, you were saying, you know, I'm not sure what to say, and and that that's common for you, but uh, they're going to walk us through what to say, and uh, they're going to go through kind of these tracks that I gave you, so... Uh, anyway we 're all kind of in the same boat here it 's not easy for any of us, but it 's always uh, joyous afterward it 's like, "Wow, God, you trusted me to share my faith and So I want people to be encouraged. But uh, as we think about the law, I want you to think about a mirror that 's that 's why Angie brought the, this is kind of a cool mirror because on this side it's like ten times magnification, so you can really see all the blemishes with the ten, <laughs> a ten times. So the Bible's like that only more. It's it shows you all of our flaws, doesn't it? But uh, we can be made right through the Lord. So, all right, let's start it again. And there's another twenty minutes or so, and then we'll the law just wrap up. We're
1: filthy, dirty, and in desperate need of God's cleansing. <laughs> And the tragedy of modern evangelism is that around the turn of the last century, when it got rid of the law and its ability to convert the soul, to drive people to the Savior, modern evangelism had to therefore find another reason for people to come to the Savior. And the issue that it is chosen to attract people to Jesus is the promise of life enhancement. The gospel has degenerated into Jesus Christ will give you love, joy, peace, fulfillment, and lasting happiness. Now, to illustrate the unscriptural nature of this very popular teaching, one that I used to teach myself, please listen to the following story, because the essence of what we're saying pivots on this particular point. Two
2: men are seated in a plane. The first is given a parachute and told to put it on as it would improve his flight. He's a little skeptical at first, as he can't see how wearing a parachute in a plane could possibly improve. Improve the flight. After a time, he decides to experiment and see if the claim is true. As he puts it on, he notices the weight of it upon his shoulders, and he finds that he has difficulty in sitting upright. However, he was told
1: the parachute would improve the flight, so he decides to give the thing a little time. And as he waits, he starts to notice that the other passengers are laughing at him, because he's wearing a parachute in a plane. And as they continue to point and laugh, he finally can't stand it any longer. He slinks in his seat, unstraps the parachute, and throws it on the floor disillusionment and bitterness fill his heart, because as far as he's concerned, he was told an outright lie.
2: The second man is given a parachute, but listen to what he's told. He's told to put it on because at any moment he'd be jumping 25,000 feet out of the plane. He gratefully puts it on. He doesn't notice the weight on his shoulders, nor that he can't sit upright. His mind is consumed with the thought of what would happen
1: to him if he jumped without that parachute. Now, let's analyze the motive and the result of both passengers' experience. The first man put on the parachute solely to improve his flight. And the result of his experience was that he was humiliated by the other passengers. He was disillusioned and somewhat bitter toward those who gave him the parachute. As far as he's concerned, it'll be a long time before someone gets one of those things on his back again. The second man put the parachute on solely to escape the
2: jump to come. And because of his knowledge of what would happen to him without it, he has a deep, rooted joy and peace in his heart, knowing that he's safe from sure death. This knowledge gives him the ability to withstand the mockery of the other passengers. His attitude toward those who gave
1: him the parachute is one of heartfelt gratitude. Now listen to what the modern gospel says. It says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll give you love, joy, peace, fulfillment, and lasting happiness. In other words, Jesus will improve your flight. And so the sinner responds, and in an experimental kind of way, puts on the Savior to see if the claims are true. And what does he get? Just what Jesus promised. Trials, tribulation, persecution. The other passengers mock him. What does he do? He takes off the Lord Jesus Christ. He's offended that he's been mocked. He's disillusioned and bitter. And how can you blame him? He was promised love, joy, peace, fulfillment, and lasting happiness, and all he got were more trials and humiliation. His bitterness is directed toward those who gave him the so-called good news, and now he's worse off than he was before, because now he thinks he's given Jesus a try, and all he got was a big letdown. Another inoculated and bitter backslider.
2: Instead of saying that Jesus improves the flight... We should be warning the passengers that they're going to have to jump out of the plane. That it's appointed a man wants to die, and after this, the judgment. And when a sinner understands the horrific consequences of breaking God's law, he will flee to the Savior solely to escape the wrath that's to come. And if we are true and faithful witnesses, that's what we should be preaching. That there is wrath to come. That God commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because He has
1: appointed a day in which He will judge judge the world in righteousness you see it's not an issue of happiness but of righteousness it doesn't matter how happy a person is or isn't in their current lifestyle without the righteousness of christ they'll perish ...on the day of judgment. The Bible says, "...riches profit not on the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death." You see, that's how I realized that I needed a Savior. I had many of the things that the world has to offer, but I knew that none of that would matter on the day when I stood before God and all of my sin came out as evidence of my guilt. It was the righteousness of Christ that I would need to be saved." Now, let me say that peace and joy are legitimate fruits of salvation. They are the wonderful, beautiful results of salvation. But it's not legitimate to use those fruits as a draw card for salvation. Why? Because if a person comes to God looking for peace, some joy in their life, but they're not broken in their heart, repentant over the fact that they've sinned against Almighty God, they won't find peace with God. They won't know the joy of the Lord. They'll remain enemies of God in their minds through wicked works, separated from God because of their sin. And if we continue to give people the wrong reason to come to Christ... They'll respond with a wrong motive, lacking repentance.
2: Can you remember why the second passenger had peace and joy in his heart? It was because he knew that parachute was going to save him from sure death. In the same way, I have, as the Apostle Paul says, joy and peace in believing, because I know the righteousness of Christ is going to deliver
1: me from the wrath that's to come. Now, with that thought in mind, let's take a look at another incident on board our airplane. We have a brand new stewardess, and it's her first day on the job, and she wants to make an impression on the passengers, and that's exactly what she does. Because as she's walking down the aisle, carrying a boiling hot pot of coffee, she accidentally trips over somebody's foot and slops this boiling hot liquid into the lap of our second passenger. Now, what's his reaction as this boiling hot liquid hits his tender flesh, does he go, oh man, that hurts? Yes, of course, he feels the pain. But then does he stand up out of his seat, unstrap the parachute, and throw it on the floor saying, the stupid parachute? No, of course not. Why should he? He didn't put the parachute on to improve his flight. He put it on to save his life. And if anything, the hot coffee would cause him to cling tighter to the parachute and even look forward to the job.
2: If you and I have put on the Lord Jesus Christ for the biblical motive to flee from the wrath that's to come, when tribulation strikes, when the flight gets bumpy, we won't get angry at God. We won't lose our joy or peace. Why should we? We didn't come to Jesus for a happy lifestyle. We came because we'd sinned against God and needed a Savior to save us from the wrath that's to come. And if anything, tribulation drives a true believer closer to the Savior. And sadly, we have literally most multitudes are professing Christians who lose their joy and peace when the flight gets bumpy why they 're the product of a man centered gospel
1: they came lacking repentance without which you cannot be saved. Think of the woman caught in the act of adultery. She had violated the seventh commandment. The law called for her blood. They were about to stone her. The law condemned her. And that's one of the functions of God's law. It condemns. Now you might say, wait a minute. That's not right. We can't go around condemning people. Well... That's true. We don't need to. They're condemned already. John 3.18 says, He that believes not is condemned already. All the law does is show a person himself in his true light.
2: Some of you may identify with this. You've got a wooden table in your living room. You dust it down. It's clean. It's dust free. Then you draw back the curtains and let in the early morning sunlight. What do you see on the table? Dust. What do you see in the air? Dust. Did the light create the dust? No. The light merely exposed the dust. And when you and I take the time to draw back the curtains of the Holy of Holies and let the light of God's law shine upon a sinner's heart, all that happens is that he sees himself in truth. The commandment is a lamp and the law is light. That's why Paul says in Romans 7 verse 13, By the commandment, sin became exceedingly sinful. In other words, it was the law that showed Paul's sin in its true light.
1: This next clip shows how little some people know about God's law.
3: Bud, Bud Light, Corona, Heineken, Heineken, Budweiser, Old Style,
1: uh, Red Dog, Bush, Red Wolf, Natural <laughs> Guinness, Foster's. Oh, <laughs> While that may seem funny to some, it's a sad reality that many people today know more about beer than they do about the Ten Commandments, God's moral standard. If someone does not know God's law, they will not see their sin as being exceedingly sinful, and their heart will not be prepared for the gospel. It's as simple
2: as this. What farmer would take good seed and cast it on hard soil? Firstly, he prepares the soil. He breaks it up. Good seed, good soil, good harvest. And what modern evangelism does is it takes the good seed of the gospel and casts it on the hard, unregenerate heart of humanity. Biblical evangelism, without exception, is always law to the proud, grace to the humble. Never will you see Jesus giving the gospel, the good news, the grace of God, to a proud, arrogant, self-righteous person. No, with the law, he breaks the hard heart. With the gospel, he heals the broken heart. Why did he do that? Because he always did those things that please the Father. The Bible says God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Let me put it another way. What doctor would give a cure to a patient when the patient's not first convinced of his disease? Imagine I'm a doctor, and I say to you, I've got this wonderful cure, but you're not convinced of the disease. You're going to pour it down the drain, and why shouldn't you? You don't appreciate it, and there's no point in appropriating it. But if instead I say to you... (laughs) You've got a terrible terminal disease. Sit down. I can see 10 clear symptoms on your flesh. You're going to be dead in two weeks. And you say, what should I do? Then I say to you, oh, don't worry, I've got a cure. Then you're going to grab it. You're going to appreciate it. And you're going to appropriate it because you've seen the disease that you might appreciate the cure.
1: Disease is sin, and the cure is the gospel. And if we care about people, we must take the time to first help them see that they have the disease and help them understand the serious consequences of sin before Almighty God so that they will appreciate the cure of the gospel. I'd like to share with you now how I share my faith personally, how we put these principles into action. I love to read about how Jesus shared the gospel. And there's a beautiful example in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well, demonstrating how Jesus interacted with this woman. We like to call it the way of the master. It shows Jesus first relating to this woman in the natural realm talking about natural things, and then he swings to the spiritual realm, talks about spiritual things, he brings conviction using the seventh commandment, and then reveals himself as the Messiah. And I'll try to follow in his footsteps, so to speak, by talking with someone about everyday things, and then deliberately swing to the subject of God. And sometimes I do this by bringing up uh, something religious that's occurred in the news, Uh, just a general question like, hey, you ever think about what happens when you die? hey, do you believe in God, do you know any good churches around, or I'll use a good gospel track to bring up the subject of spiritual things. I did this uh, not too long ago, I was on the golf course with uh, a friend of mine, and uh, we got on the subject of the things of God, and I asked him, I said, you believe in God? And he says, yeah. And he says, um, yeah, I used to go to church when I was a kid. And then I asked him, would you consider yourself to be a good person? And he said, yeah, I do. And then I asked, do you think you've kept the Ten Commandments? And remember, that's what Jesus used, the Ten Commandments, with that rich young ruler. And this man said to me, well, I've kept most of them. I mean, I've never murdered anybody. And I'm thinking, oh, that's a good thing, out here on the golf course. And I said, well, have you ever lied? And he said, yeah, of course. And then I said, what does that make you? What are you called? And he said, A liar. And then I said, have you ever stolen anything? That's the Eighth Commandment. And he said, "Uh, no. And sometimes I'll say to him, come on, I'm not sure I believe you. You just admitted to me you're a liar. And he said, okay, okay, okay. I did when I was younger. Yeah, I've stolen a few things. And then I asked him... Are you familiar with the seventh commandment? You shall not commit adultery. But listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said, whoever looks upon a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Have you ever done that? And this man said, oh yeah, plenty of times. And then I said to him, by your own admission, you're a lying thief and an adulterer at heart. And that's only three of the ten commandments. There's seven more pointed at you. You should have seen the look on his face. Well, he looked guilty because he knew he was guilty. And that's what the commandments do. They leave the whole world guilty. I mean, think about it, even for you, sitting right where you are. Do you think you've kept God's commandments? Look at the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. Jesus said to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, so much that your love for everyone else is like hatred compared to your love and devotion for God. Have you always loved God that much? Or the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a graven image. Now, you can either make a false god with your hands or with your mind. Have you ever said something like this? My God is a God of love and mercy. He's not a God of judgment and would never send anyone to hell. Well, if you've said that, you're right. Your God never would send anyone to hell because He couldn't. Because He doesn't exist. He's a figment of your imagination. You've created a God in your own mind that you're more comfortable with. You've created a God to suit your sins. It's called idolatry. And many people call that simply their own beliefs, but the Bible calls it idolatry, and idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Or the third commandment, you should
2: not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Have you ever used God's name as a cuss word to express disgust? Something called blasphemy. Jesus warned, every idle word a man speaks, he'll give an account thereof on the day of judgment. And the Bible says, the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. I went for 22 years as a non-Christian, knowing that God had given me life and never Never once did I say, God, you gave me life. What do you require of me? One day in seven, I violated that commandment. Or the fifth, honor your father and mother. Have you always honored your parents implicitly in a way that's pleasing in the sight of God? Or the sixth
1: commandment, you shall not kill or murder. Most of us think we're innocent with that one. But Jesus said, whoever is angry with his brother without cause is in danger of judgment. And the Bible says, he who hates his brother is a murderer. We've already looked at the seventh, the eighth, and the ninth. And who of us can say that we're not guilty of violating the tenth commandment, coveting, or being jealous, greedy for things that belong to other people? And remember, God even sees our thought life and the secret deeds done in darkness. James 2.10 says, He who keeps the whole law and violates it at just one point is guilty of all. Can you see how the commandments leave us all guilty? My friend could see that on the golf course, and so I asked him, If God were to judge you by the commandments, would you be innocent or guilty? He said, Guilty. I said, So does that mean that you'd go to heaven or hell? And you know what he said? He said, heaven, because God is forgiving. You just need to ask him. And I said to him, man, try that in a court of law. You're standing before a judge guilty of a serious crime. And the judge says, what do you have to say before I pass sentence? And you stand up and say, judge, I'd just like to say that I believe you're a good man and therefore you'll let me go. Is the judge going to let you go if he's a good judge? Of course not. He'll probably say, because I'm a good man, I'm going to see that justice is served. Because I am a good man, I'm going to see that you're punished for what you've done. And the very thing that many people are hoping will save them on the day of judgment is the very thing that will condemn them. Because if God is good, then by nature, he will make sure that justice is served and that people are punished for what they've done. And the Bible says that God will punish sin wherever it's found. He'll punish murderers and rapists, but he won't stop there. God is so good, he'll also punish liars and thieves, adulterers, blasphemers, and all those who violate the inner light that God has given to every man. So I said to my friend, if God gave you justice, you wouldn't be headed for heaven, would you? But for hell. It's when he hung his head and his mouth was stopped that I knew the law, the commandments, had done their work. And he was ready for grace. I said, man, I want to tell you some great news. Put yourself in a courtroom. You're guilty of a serious crime with a million dollar fine or life in prison. You can't pay your fine when all of a sudden someone comes into the courtroom and pays your fine for you. I said, that's what God did for you and for me 2,000 years ago. Jesus Christ stepped into the courtroom, so to speak, and paid our fine when he suffered and died on the cross. The Bible puts it like this. God demonstrated his own love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We broke the law, and Jesus paid our fine. It's as simple as that. And then he rose from the grave, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And then I told him, God commands him to repent and put his faith in Jesus Christ. We got to the end of the golf course and he put his his face in his hands and began weeping in the middle of the parking lot, crying out to the Lord to forgive him. It was a beautiful thing and he said to my wife the next day, that was the best day of my entire life and golf had nothing to do with it. Please watch carefully as Ray uses the commandments in this clip. To help a person see the disease of sin before he offers the
0: cure of the gospel. Okay, can you name any of them? Um, yes. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not. Oh, well,
2: I, I know. Yeah. You know a few. Yeah, I know. Now, do you think you've kept those Ten Commandments? Um, yes. Okay, have you ever told a lie? Well, at some times, you know, most every human does. So you broke that one? Yes. So what are you called if you tell a lie? A liar. Have you ever stolen? No, sir, I haven't. Even something really small? Be honest before God. Well, I guess a little stuff. Like, maybe like a piece of gum or something. Just a piece of gum. So what does that make you? Well, a stealer, I guess. Thief, see the value of the thing you steal doesn't make any difference. If I open your wallet and just take out one dollar, it's as bad as taking out a hundred dollars. I'm a thief. Now, Jesus said, If you if we look at a woman and lust after her, we commit adultery with her in her heart. Have you ever done that? I'm um, no sir, I, sorry. you looked at a woman with lust. Oh, um, well, <laughs> your friend over there is laughing at you, he doesn't think you're speaking the truth. Well, I mean. Yes, I have looked at a woman, you know. So you've told another lie. All right. So you've really blown it, haven't you? (laughs) So you've broken three commandments. Well, I've only looked at three. We haven't looked at the other seven. Have you ever used God's name in vain? Yes, sir. So instead of using a four-letter filth word to express disgust, you've taken the name of the God who gave you life and used his name as a curse word, which is called blasphemy. So on Judgment Day, when God judges you by that standard, are you going to be innocent or guilty of breaking his commandments? I would be guilty of that one. Do you think you're go to heaven or hell?
0: Um... Well, I think... I think i'd probably go to heaven in the sense that that's that's one thing that from now on i'll try to improve myself and that god might forgive me for all my for the sins that i've broken from that so do you think god should
2: let murderers and liars and thieves and adulterers into heaven i guess not so you're in big trouble really you're heading for hell aren't you yeah does that concern you yes Yes, it does. Because there's nothing more valuable than your life, is there? Would you sell one of your eyes for a million dollars? No, sir. Your eyes are precious to you, aren't they? And you they're the windows of your soul. Your soul or your life looks out those those eyes. Now, Jesus said, you're to despise the value of your eye compared to the value of your soul. He said, if your eye causes you to sin, block it out and cast it from you, for it's better to enter heaven without an eye than go to hell with both your eyes. And do you know why Jesus died on the cross? Why he did? For uh, for sinning. Sinning? Well, he died for our sins, for the sins, sins of the world. Of everybody around the world. Like, the you know, sacrifice he tell for everyone else. Now, do you know how to... I partake in that gift of salvation. Do you know what you should do? No. Well, if you were on a plane and you knew you had to jump and there was a parachute under the seat, what would you do? I'd take the parachute. Put it on. You wouldn't just believe in it, would you? You'd put it on. Yes. That's exactly what you have to do with Jesus. The Bible says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to repent. That is, turn from your sins once and all and put your faith in Jesus the same way you put your trust in a parachute. The moment you do that... The Bible says you'll pass from death to life, you'll come out of darkness into light, and you'll receive God's gift of everlasting life. Perhaps you're a professing Christian, and you're beginning to doubt the motive for your salvation. Well, the Bible says examine yourself and see if you're in the faith. And if you're not sure, make your calling and election sure. Go somewhere quiet. Confess your sins to God. Open the Bible at Psalm 51 and make it your own penitent
0: prayer. I think I'll stop there. We're out of time, but uh, there's only a couple of minutes. And uh, uh, is everybody tracking with this? It's uh, kind of fun to watch, but uh, can we do it ourselves? Maybe we'll try. Um, a yep, a little bit of practice. Let me. Uh, everybody, take a couple of these. I forgot to. Everybody, take a couple of these and pass them around before we leave. Um, but uh, let, let me give you uh, a little bit of assignment. So th- this is the chapter two video. So. So we're we're going to go ahead and uh, wrap up chapter 1 but th- this this verse Hebrews 9:27 does anybody remember what that says Uh it says and as it is appointed unto man once to die but after this the judgment So uh that that's a great verse to refute uh you know uh reincarnation cuz uh, we don't come back, you know, as an animal or another person. We're not reincarnated. It's appointed unto man once to die, but after that, the judgment. So we're we'll all going to stand before God in judgment. And so uh, so memorize that verse this week if you can. And uh, th- this is a principle we'll build upon, law to the proud and grace to the humble. So, you know, Jesus did that with the woman at the well she was prideful, and uh, but once he pointed out her sin and she humbled herself, then he gave her grace. And so th- this is just a great principle. So uh, read chapter 2, memorize this verse, and uh, we'll see you next uh, week. And we're going to, so read chapter 2 of your book. So that's what uh, I think Pat's going to teach next week. So be be looking at chapter 2 of your book. Is there any questions? Any thoughts, prayers? There we go. Was there any more prayers on there, honey? I don't think so. Okay, well, I'm going to ask uh, Kevin if he would to pray. And, uh, Sean, we're glad you're here, young man. And uh, good seeing you too, Tom. Go ahead, Kevin.
3: Thank you, dear Lord, Heavenly Father, for allowing us to be here together today. You say wherever two or more meet here in the midst thereof, just uh, always know that you're always welcome to, to come sit with us and supple the school.